0: Shall we pray for our moms? We need a little prayer of blessing for mom. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. Moms, stay seated. Everyone else, stand up. Uh, and then you can just extend a hand of blessing toward the mom. Parkson, I know for sure you're not a mom. Stand, there you go. Okay. I'm just... I'm not going to do the jokes. Um, all right. And uh, let's just uh, pray uh, God's blessing on these servants in blue water fashion uh, with great uh, faith and affection. Father, I, uh, I thank you for inventing mothers and uh, for doing life this way. We pray, Lord, that you would stir up the best that is in these moms uh, to reflect the best that you have given us as a people. In the name of Jesus, as your brothers and sisters in the Lord, mothers, uh, we bless you with a day of refreshment, with the Sabbath blessing of the Lord upon you for rest for celebration and for supernatural provision in every way that you need. We bless you with honor in the assembly and uh, we bless you with a week of honor in the world. It shall go well with you. You shall experience grace wherever you go. I pray, Father, that you would pour out upon them the blessing of the affections that they have poured out upon us. In Jesus' name, everybody says, Amen. Amen. And if you didn't get one of our roses, complain to Quok. Mike has them. Complain to Mike right now. You guys are not nagging moms or you would have let them have it. How was your week? That did not sound convincing at all. Um, you saw me wearing a, a mask earlier, perhaps. I was around some sick people this week, not to alarm you. I did not get sick, no symptoms. We got tested yesterday, no no COVID. Uh, I, I told my wife it was because of my uh, vegan diet and my copious use of cayenne pepper. So I don't know if that's a controversial COVID solution, but, but there you go. But anyway, I thought, I'd, you know, I thought I'd wear the mask just, I mean, because you know, why, why, not, why not be polite and careful and, and stuff like that? But, uh, but I took it off, and I'm going to preach at you anyway. We're starting a new sermon series today on something that you may have heard of, one of my favorite things in the world to talk about, grace. I have it on good authority that it's amazing. Amazing. Uh, and so a warm-up question today, since some of you were enthusiastic and knowledgeable, I'm going to ask you, ready? What is grace? How would you define grace? Some of you are Christian veterans, uh, so I'm sure you've thought about this before. Uh, how would you define grace? I'm going to give you eight seconds to be brilliant. Go. Undeserved favor. Undeserved favor. I heard someone say under. I think there might have been a deserved at the end of that. What what else? Undeserved favor.
1: What what does that mean
0: exactly when you have favor from someone? Fill that out a little bit. Goodness. Hey. Forgiveness, acceptance, blessing, favorable things. All right, all right. What else? How would you define grace? What else was in your brilliant little minds? A mother's love. Bonus points for Jason. Awesome. That was kind of a softball, but you hit it out of the park, man. All right, what else? Welcome. Uh, interesting word, yeah, with respect to grace. That's not bad. Gentleness. Grace and gentleness. That's an interesting connection. Why, why, why do you make it? I mean, it's a good connection. Why, why do you make it? Think about it a second. This is an impressionistic answer, but I kind of dig it, right? It's grace. It feels gentle. It feels soft. It feels welcoming. Grace is soft, warm. Yeah. What else? Unnatural. Unnatural. I like that because it's a provocative. Like, it's not presumably because it's not something that you find in the world normally. Nice. And there was Tony? Unmerited gift. Unmerited. Unmerited gift, Yeah undeserved, but unmerited, not, not, not earned in any way. It's not because you're excellent, although you all are. Yeah, one more? Tolerance. Tolerance. Yeah. Boy, there's a word that uh, has been used, defined, and redefined over the last 30 years. Uh, but I would love to see it really reclaimed uh, under the banner of grace, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, because it's a lovely lovely word, you know, tolerance. All right, you guys did really well on that. Give yourself snaps. So here's a, a deeper question because you all got A's. What is grace good for? What is it good for? What does it accomplish in the world? Restoration. How does it do that, Tim? Interesting. I'm not sure everybody could hear that, but the explanation is, well, when people experience grace, when they when they feel unfavored blessing, then they feel like they can move on from whatever disaster, whatever mistake, whatever disappointment, I don't know. And so, it's progress, you know. Grace is progress. Nice. Nice explanation. Somebody else got one? It develops allegiance. All right, dude, you got to unpack that. Develops allegiance. Say say a sentence. Yeah, so what Evan said there was like, well, when somebody uh, gives you grace, then you feel like you can develop community with them, was one of the first things that you say. So I like that because it it generates community in a unique way, right? And and you ally yourselves with them, which is where the word allegiance comes from. You feel like you can trust that person as an ally. Faithfulness, you can be faithful to that person. Uh, for reasons that are probably obvious. Great answers. Good job. That's all I got today. You you basically preached uh, the sermon. But what I want to do in this sermon series for the next several weeks is talk about grace, but I want to talk about uh, a a specific form of grace. I want to talk about applied grace. I want to talk about what grace is good for, about what it does. When I said the word grace, maybe a lot of you thought, well, we need grace from God. True, right? But everybody needs grace, right? Communities need grace, right? The world needs grace because it's an unnatural thing to find in the world, so forth and so on. So this is a sermon series about applied grace. If this were a university course, it would be Applied Grace 101. You know, Maybe, maybe we'll get to 301 in, in, in later weeks, grad level grace. All right, so here's how I would define grace. Uh, and if you've been around, uh, you've heard me do this shtick before. But grace is this, grace is truth plus generosity. You heard me say that before, Blue Water veterans? Truth plus generosity. It's like two wings of a bird, and you need both in order to fly. You need both the truth and the generosity. Uh, What happens, we humans typically abandon one or the other, right? Uh, if you abandon generosity, if you abandon gentleness was a word, we had some other words like that. If, if you're not uh, accepting, tolerant of, of people, uh, then all you have left is, is truth, rigidity, law, and who can stand against that? Right? If all you have is rigid standards, and you become a person of rigid standards, of law, rule-keeping, one, you become a, a real drag at parties, people don't want to be around you in community because they get just scared of you. And your life just sucks, right? Because you're not going to keep those standards and you have to hide from them, right? You have to pretend that you're perfect and all that. Who wants that pressure? Who wants that pressure, right? If if you're only generosity, right? If you just, I just have to be kind. I'm never going to give offense. I'm going to welcome. I'm going to be tolerant of everything and everyone all the time, 110%. Then what you do is you start throwing away your standards. You pretend as if there are no standards. You pretend as if there is no truth. And then what happens then? Well, I mean, you know, chaos in a life without any discipline in any area of life leads to super unhealthy life, right? You just pick an area of your life, you know. Nutrition, yeah, you want to use food for fun and joy and celebration, but if you have no discipline in your diet, could point fingers, but I'm not gonna. Because <laughs> that would show a lack of grace. You see what I'm doing here? All right, you get the idea, right? So you need both. And it leads to some really some surprising formulations. Uh, Paul says in Romans 5, quite famously, that the law, God's rules, the law came so that sin might increase. And sin increasing makes grace abound all the more isn't that weird man paul one of the the great fathers of the church saying that well the reason god gave us rules is so that we could break them and kind of know how sinful we are and and therefore get righteous and obey all the rules better no that's not what he says (laughs) He said, so that sin might increase everywhere. It would become really obvious so that grace would be obvious. So that it would be clear to all that you couldn't just be mindless rule keepers. Because it's hopeless. Very weird theology. But that's basically the theology of the Bible. And I will argue in this series, that was the theology of the Bible even in the Old Testament. God gave basic lessons in grace. And by the time we get to the New Testament, he's given advanced lessons in grace. But it's been grace uh, the whole time. So there's this negotiation in grace. It's a negotiation between the standards, the truth, and being chill about the truth and the rules. It's kind of the most you know, accessible way uh, that I can put it. Remove either one, either side of that, and you get destruction. You have to be able to do both simultaneously. In in, intention. You have to live there in that place. Um, And if in your world there is no grace, if you can't expect grace from the people around you, you live in terror and shame and you hide. And if you don't give grace to people, they too (laughs) will live in terror and shame and hide. Everything will rupture. Everything will fall apart. All right. You've done great so far. Are you following me? Yeah, right, Grace. Two things intention. What is the opposite of grace? I'll give you 8 seconds to be brilliant. Grace, truth plus generosity. What's the opposite of that? How how does that work? What would be an example? Relentless judging. Judgmentalism. How many of you were thinking some form of that answer? Not bad. I'm sorry? Tolerance. So this is interesting. Radical tolerance. Tolerance of all things, all the time. So sort of a licentious tolerance. It's like uh, (laughs) non-judgmentalism, right? Anything in the extreme can be unhealthy. So that's interesting. That's an interesting way to think about it, right? Yeah. It depends which wing you focus on, doesn't it? Yeah. I have an interesting answer to this question uh, as I've been thinking about it a lot these days. At least in terms of applied grace, what is the opposite of applied grace, which is to say, what is applied non-grace? What is that? And I would say that it's control. I would say that it's the spirit of control. Practically speaking, like conceptually maybe not, but practically speaking. I think like when you withhold grace, it usually has something to do with being controlling. Right? No! These are the rules. You must follow them. Alright, I mean, sometimes that's a very good thing to say, moms. Right? but sometimes that's a controlling thing to say. And if you're all about that, then you're probably a rather controlling person, right? Even like wanton licentiousness, right? Like generosity taken to an unhealthy extreme. Even that is sort of controlling because usually it's about controlling what people think of you. It's like, no, don't judge, don't judge. That would be terrible. You're not allowed to judge. You're not allowed, you're not allowed. I'm not allowed. Like everything is okay, everything is okay, which is a form of judgment. Uh, excuse me, a form of control, right? You're controlling environments, atmosphere. You're being legalistic in an anti-legalistic <laughs> sort of way. Um, and the reason I've been thinking, out, thinking that a lot is because, well, I think today, in the past few years, uh, I think what's killing society, what's killing culture is a lack of grace, right? Grace has been sucked out of the culture. We, we, not, we have developed more than ever an inability to live in that tension called grace. And we become extremely judgmental or non-judgmental in a very judgmental way, (laughs) right? Lots of pointing fingers, right? There's no generosity. Like, you could be a great person, but if there's one thing wrong with you and it gets out on Facebook, you're canceled, you know, or, you know, the culture wars because, like, you know, The woke culture has its problems and the reactionary culture has its problems, right? And so everything's getting very controlled. I was preparing, uh, thinking about this sermon this week and then uh, uh, someone at the Supreme Court leaked the memo about the upcoming Roe versus Wade judgment, like evidently the Supreme Court is going to overturn Roe versus Wade, which doesn't mean abortion is illegal, it means that the states get to decide uh, probably what it means. We'll see how it, it turns out. But this morning, protesters, they got the home addresses of the conservative judges on the Supreme Court, and they went to their homes just around the homes. And a sitting senator has said, uh, has named conservative justice by names and said, and they will be made to pay. So it's like, I mean, whatever you think about the judgment and legal, like whatever is going on there, it's like, wow, this is the Supreme Court, right? They're supposed to be by definition above it all, and they're, they're, they're getting life threats. Samuel Alito, one of the chief, one of the justices on the court, had to cancel speaking engagements this week, not because he got death threats, but because he got so many death threats they couldn't keep track. It's like, well, it's just, I mean, that's just this week, right? Uh, and it just happens to be that issue. It could be issues anywhere on any part of the spectrum, right? But that sort of behavior is now called righteous. Um, And we've seen more and more of that. It's been building in our culture for several years. And I think it's infected the church in a terrible way. We've experienced it a lot, even at at Blue Water. Um, And, um, you know, in painful ways. Maybe some of you have experienced it. And what I think is happening, like, it's not even that I care what side of issues that you all fall out on. What I care about is, is when Christians give up on grace. This is the thing nearest, dearest my heart in the kingdom of God. Um, and I think the church, the capital C church, like the rest of society, has been seduced to a large extent to kind of give up on grace. And you see churches splitting all over America. Uh, and can't do that at Blue Water. Gotta, gotta stick with grace. So my heart has been heavy about it um, for various reasons. Uh, What is grace good for? Uh, Well, there's some great answers already. I think it often leads to people changing their lives when nothing else would lead to them changing their lives, right? Like we tend to be fruitful in the tension. It's like uh, uh, the fish ponds. Uh, that dot our island on the shore. Where do you put, where do you put, put fish ponds? In fresh water or in salt water? Where do you put them? Yeah, you put them in the place where they come together because uh, that tends to be the most fruitful place generally. Right? You get a mixture of all sorts of, of life, and I think it's a fair... Um, if, if Jesus uh, had done the Gospels in Hawaii, I'm sure he would have used that analogy. Uh, to talk about grace. Uh, I'll share a story uh, about wheats and weeds that are quite similar, but like, it's where things are in tension that life tends to happen best. Uh, and so when people feel that there are standards they can shoot for, but they won't get judged terribly when they fail, <laughs> then you can live, then you can breathe, then you can grow, then you can participate In blue water vernacular, when you feel truth and an atmosphere of generosity, then you are able to try. Right? Faith is trying, we say at blue water. Try does not mean succeed, try means try, right? All All the faith is in the trying. But if you don't know grace, then you think you have to succeed and if you think you must succeed then it makes trying a lot harder you following me right so trying does not succeed trying does not succeed <laughs> right you don't succeed at trying uh, in an atmosphere uh, devoid uh, of grace and you don't repent very well in an atmosphere devoid of grace right if you try and fail or if you just fail then you feel like it's forever you feel like you have to say, oh, no, that standard was not really the standard. right?" I have, I have decided that um, you know, what the Bible says about sex or money uh, is, is false now that I have transgressed it. <laughs> right? And that's the behavior of someone who has not experienced grace. Uh, repentance comes only from the tension. Oh, you know what? I want to try again to meet that standard. And I feel like I totally can because I'm free. No one's holding anything against me, least of all God. Got it? it. So let's read uh, our first passage from Scripture on applied grace. I'm going to read from uh, John 8, probably my favorite grace passage and one I've used before. You can turn there in your Bibles, scroll there on your smartphones, or read the big board behind me. 11 verses, uh, this is a story about the woman caught in adultery. You guys know this? Yeah. I've talked about it once or twice over the last decade of Blue water. Um, factoid on this story, almost certainly not originally in the Gospel of John. Um, it is written uh, in the sort of Greek, and in the style of the Gospel of Luke, actually. And so scholars think that originally it was part of the Gospel of Luke, uh, which makes a lot of sense. But the early church fathers were so offended by this story uh, because it has a lot of tension in it that they cut it out of Luke. And then years passed and eventually saner minds prevailed and they're like, we have to stick it back in. But the Gospel of John came out decades after the Gospel of Luke. And so it was the one that was premiering at the time and so they stuck it in the Gospel of John instead. That's the theory anyway. It makes sense to me. I totally buy it. Uh, so, uh, which is comforting to me, because even the early Christians had trouble getting their minds and hearts around grace and how it works. Uh, verses 1 through 11. Uh, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, so there in Jerusalem, the last week of Jesus' life, when all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them, the teachers of the law and the pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery they made her stand before the group and said to jesus teacher this woman was caught in the act of adultery Pause. ooh they were spying on her creepy Uh, but evidently she was caught red-handed they had set her up somehow or they knew what was going down i don't know in the, law of Mo- in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Sort of true. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Why? Well, because Jesus had a reputation as licentious, as overly permiss- permissive. And so if, if they caught her in the act, they had proof that she had transgressed in this way, and Jesus didn't kill her, then they could say, well, he's not honoring scripture. He's not upholding the standard. So that's the trap. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Interesting. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. In other words, like, You consider what it would be like for you to live in an atmosphere devoid of grace. He doesn't say that literally, but that's kind of the provocation he's giving them, right? Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. (laughs) At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So he brings up sin at the end, only one of two places in scripture where Jesus calls the sin out of someone that was like manifestly a a sinner. And in both instances, it has this sort of twist of caring on it. Like, okay, don't sin, because they're trying to kill you. (laughs) So, you know, you should probably straighten up, you know, for any number of reasons. Do you think that she needed her sin pointed out to her at that point? But, you know, he takes the, he takes the, the opportunity to kind of reify that, oh, no, there is a standard here, my dear, and you're not keeping it. Careful. All right. So a lot to talk about uh, in that story, but let's just go through a couple of things quickly to illustrate grace and get it fixed in our heads for the next few weeks. The heart of the story is that Jesus is confronted with this woman caught in the act. The jury is there, right? And he's supposed to judge her. And instead he bends down and he doodles on the ground. And scholars have given themselves fits over the centuries saying, well, what was he writing on the ground with his finger? So I, I, you know, my my position on this is like, if it were important, they probably would have told us. So I don't think it's what he's writing. I think it's what he's doing. Actually, I think it's what he's not doing. And what is he not doing? He's not looking at the poor woman. So mercy is when God forgives your sins. Grace is when God refuses to look at them. Doesn't that feel different? Right? He doesn't say, I forgive you. He says, I won't dishonor you. I won't, I won't put you through the indignity of this. And that's a slightly different heart. Right? Because she was feeling so scared and so shamed. And he's like, that's not how I see you. So I will literally not see you. I love that. I would do backflips for that if I could do backflips. Isn't that just awesome? Doesn't look at her until they get to a safe space where everybody leaves. And then he straightens up and says, hey, nobody's judging you. Now. Now we can have a chat. When you're free of judgment, now we can chat about what you did wrong. Because until you experience grace, any talk I have with you about sin feels like judgment, and you will resist it. Once you experience grace, then I can talk to you about your sin, and we might be able to talk like human beings and help each other. Right? And... That's what church is, by the way. When you experience grace and you can talk together like human beings and help each other, be what you should be. Live a better life. Because it's important that you do. Not because God is really angry at you and judgmental, this shows it, but because it has got a life for you to live. And there's some good things ahead of you. And it doesn't involve you messing up and... Wasting your life, you know, that sort of thing. You get it? I love that story. I just love that little moment. Here's a question. Uh, before she was caught in adultery this day, do you think that she knew that adultery was wrong? Everybody in that culture did. Today, in our culture, crazy licentious, do we know that adultery is wrong? Even we still have a distaste for that sort of behavior, right? So she knew it, and she knew the law. Do you think she knew that it was punishable by death? Uh, you bet. Everybody knew it. She knew the rules. Did it help her keep them? No. She did it anyway, in a manner so obvious that it was easy to catch her in the act. After this experience with Jesus, is she more or less likely to commit adultery? Less. Why do you say that? Well, it has to do with some of the answers you gave at the beginning of the sermon. It's because the law won't keep you from messing up, but grace might. It might give you a spirit of try. Well, I really want to do this. I I don't know if I, but I'm going to try and do the right thing. And then that leads to faith and that leads to progress and growth and learning and stuff like that. So it's really grace that inspires righteousness. Sin... Causes sin to increase. Our law causes sin to increase, as Paul said in Romans 5, I quoted earlier. Right? It's grace that releases you from sin. But remember, grace is not just forgiveness. It's not just, hey, it's okay. It's both. It's like, well, there is a standard. Don't sweat it, my dear. <laughs> Let's go forward, shall we? Right? It's both. And you gotta be able to do both. Straight compassion doesn't do it. It's really cool, right? But but grace is both. And Jesus manages to show grace in a very graceful way, doesn't he? He gets in the truth. He doesn't deny the standard. He doesn't debate the morality. He just adds grace to it. Very Christian of him. Both wings are beating in this story. Uh, there are loads of other scriptures uh, about this. you know we 're going to talk about the parable of the wheat and the weeds from Matthew thirteen. Jesus tells this parable about how when the wheat crop is growing, an enemy comes along and sows weed seeds in it, and so the weeds grow up with the wheat and the, and the harvesters say, "Hey, shall we go weed the crop and the farmer says oh no don't pull out the weeds because in doing so you might also uproot the wheat right in other words in the kingdom of god you need that spirit of tolerance otherwise you will cause everything to die (laughs) the good stuff as well as as the bad stuff you know uh how many times does jesus say in scripture in one way shape or form do not judge you know in matthew 7 do not judge and the the measure with which you judge shall be used to judge you Right? Don't judge. It doesn't mean there's no truth. It's just don't don't judge with it. You can talk about it and try to uphold it, but don't reject people on the basis of it. Um, and I'll argue that the whole Old Testament legal system was actually based on exceptions to the rule. I mean, the Old Testament legal system was not sin and die. It was sin, make a sacrifice, and then move on. And that sacrifice was like you kill the lamb or if you couldn't afford a lamb, you killed a couple doves, something that was valuable to you, in other words. And if you couldn't afford that, a handful of flour. In other words, God would take any excuse to forgive you and let you move on. The most minimal gesture. People misread the Old Testament all the time. Um, Very forgiving of God back then. Uh, So we'll leave you with the question, how should you apply grace in the world? This has been sort of a food for thought sort of sermon. I've been working on this problem my whole life. My whole life, I have asked myself, above and beyond anything else, how do I show grace in the world? Because grace is the most foreign concept on earth. Nobody understands it. Very few Christians truly accept it, right? They, they major on one wing or the other, but they don't do both. So how do I communicate, illustrate, convince the world that the tension of grace is the way to live. Oh, I've been trying so hard in so many ways. At the time I was a teenager. Um, I have lots of stories about it, but we're kind of out of time, so I'll share them in upcoming weeks. But I'm constantly putting myself in places of tension in, in the world so that I could try to show the way of Christ. These days, the world is generating those places for you and you probably have a number of them in your life. How can you show, how can you apply grace in those areas? This is the standard. I'm totally chill about you not meeting it. I'm even chill about me not meeting it sometimes, although I'll try to do better, and I would encourage you to try as well. That sort of uh, idea. So how might you apply grace? And I'll just leave you this one thought. Have you ever heard the phrase moral courage? Have you heard that phrase? People talk about that. Uh, I don't know where it started. I was trying to find like the philosophical, you know, source that, to coin the term moral courage, but it was the idea that if you have a moral code, it's gonna take courage for you to keep it. Uh, and so there's physical courage, which is like, you know, a soldier running in the face of bullets in order to rescue someone or something like that. That's physical courage. Moral courage is you're running in the face of moral bullets. You're running in the face of judgment and rejection and and maybe sacrifice coming at you, but you're gonna do what you think is right anyway. Here's what I would say. There is nothing in the world that takes more moral courage than grace. If you live a life of grace, if you stand on grace, you will be under fire. I guarantee it. You will be under fire from people in the church. You will certainly be under fire from people out in the world. Right? I have said often that the kingdom of God exists between the world on one's hand and religion on the other. And Jesus, is, Jesus faced opponents from both sources. Yeah. Um, they both killed him. Moral courage. It will feel scary to you to apply grace. You'll be like, how do I know what's, what I, if what I'm doing is right? How do I know if it's okay? Will other people think that it's okay? Or will they judge me on one side or the other? That's right. You don't know most of the time. It will be scary. And let that be a sign to you that you're doing the right thing. That you're at least in the ballpark where grace is concerned. Father God, I pray uh, for Blue Water Mission, at least, that you just release a great spirit of grace in a season devoid of grace. I pray that you would let us be light in the world. Let us be salt on the earth to show grace to people who have no expectation of it and no understanding of how it works. I pray that you would make us people of truth, and I pray that you would make us people of generosity. And I pray that we just nail it somehow. That like like the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, we'd be able to do it with cleverness, with grace, with artistic accuracy. And we need your inspiration for that, Lord. We need you to breathe on us, We need you, Holy Spirit, to give us words in that hour. But we say this morning that our heart is in it. Right? That we commit ourselves to it. In Jesus' name. Amen.